it's a little while since we've been in 1 Timothy, um, but it's a book that we've been looking at uh, together a few times, and, but it's actually quite a while since we've looked at 1 Timothy, so I'll do a quick recap in a moment. We're going to land in a minute in a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we've seen before that this is a letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, who he told to stay in Ephesus, interesting, um, and he told him to stay there because the church uh, was encountering some difficulties, shall we say, a massive church meeting in lots of different homes and places in a huge city, uh, has encountered some challenges, mainly because its leaders have gone awry, and so they're no longer really preaching or teaching uh, the true gospel of Jesus, uh, and therefore the church is getting a bit confused, and Paul has said to Timothy, you need to stay put to help, help bring this church back to good health, really. Uh, so we saw in chapter 1, Paul saying, look, this is the gospel. Let's look again at what, how wonderful this gospel is. And we see the impact that's had on Paul's life. That's the focus, the gospel. In chapter 2, he's putting the focus on the church and saying, this is the, this is the privilege and this is the wonder, this is the purpose uh, God has for his church, men and women together serving God. Uh, and then we went on to chapter 3, and the focus in chapter 3 is on, on leaders in the church, um, on overseers, we, we refer to as, as elders, because they refer to that elsewhere in other passages of the Bible, and deacons. And if you can cast your mind back, and you're forgiven if you can't, last time we were in chapter 3, we were looking at, at overseers, the uh, elders, and this time uh, we're going to look at deacons, and... Uh, and bring a few points out from this. So I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, and we're reading from verse 8. So Paul writes, Deacons likewise are but to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So, Timothy's uh, priority is to, in effect, rebuild this church, rebuild the foundation that it's on, and probably to rebuild its leadership team, uh, now that uh, two kind of false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, have been put out of the church because they've been teaching something which has the spiritual effect of gangrene. It's just killing the church. It's killing the real life of the church. So much confusion is coming that um, Timothy's attention is, is needed. He needs to stay there. And uh, I'm reminded of a, of a phrase PJ Smythe, who's leading a church somewhere in the world, once said, the world needs more elders. God's plan now in Jesus to bless the world is through the church. 
There isn't a plan B. He's using the church to uh, declare and demonstrate the wonderful good news of Jesus so that more and more people not only hear about him, but give their lives to him and come into his, his kingdom. So the world needs the church, and therefore the world needs more elders, uh, people who can uh, lead, even plant new churches. And so we're not just talking about one local church um, being led, but this multiplying movement of churches that blesses the whole world. And if the world needs more elders, then I think this passage leads us to conclude that the church needs more deacons. Did you notice that? Just like I read verses 14 and 15, where Paul is saying his whole reason for writing this letter, you know, I hope to be with you soon, but if I'm delayed, I'm giving you these things, I'm giving you these instructions, so that you kind of know how to proceed. So when Paul writes a relatively short letter, he thinks, I must say something about deacons. So if Paul must say something about deacons, it's worth us giving our attention here and say, actually, there's something important at stake. But we might say, well, if they're so important, what are they? And, and why are they so important? Uh, now, perhaps you've been a Christian long enough or you've been in a variety of different churches where you know there's, there's churches where deacons have been present and sometimes that's working out wonderfully. Sometimes historically... It's almost like set up as different camps in the church. There's like the pastor, maybe the pastors leading the church. They have the more upfront, prominent role of, of teaching and leading the church. Uh, but there's also this very influential group called the deacons, and there's like a tug of, the, tug of war between them. And the pastor might say A, but the deacons say Z. You know, they, slightly different plans, slightly different priorities, and, um, and not really a healthy dynamic for for church life but let's have a look at this passage what we see is that deacons have very similar qualifications to overseers in other words you know things like being faithful being worthy of respect not indulging in much wine not being greedy and so on there's, there's similar character traits that are needed in fact it seems like the only key difference is overseers need to be able to teach deacons need to hold on to the truth you know Overseers are, are teaching the deep truths of God. Deacons are holding on to them. That seems to be the key, uh, key difference. But they're, they're close. They're close in the text. Right after talking about elders, Paul's talking about deacons. You see the same thing at the beginning of Philippians. Paul, in just Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, is writing to all the saints in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Right, there they are again, really close together, if you like a key component, everyone's a saint, you know, every member of the church is, is a saint that Paul is writing to there, is it? along with the uh, overseers and deacons. So we see them close together, I think therefore we can assume, well they're working, they're working together, they're on the same page, they might have a slightly different role, but they're united in what they're trying to achieve. And I think what we see in this passage here in 1 Timothy 3 as well is that deacons are men and women. Now, the version that I was reading might slightly cloud that uh, because the translators have to make a decision whether they translate the word wives or women. It's the same, it's the same word. Uh, it's not, I don't think the text is really meaning that 
if a man is going to be a deacon, his wife has to match up in these respects. I think it's saying you've got men who are serving as deacons and you've got women who are serving as deacons. And at the end of Romans chapter 16, we're introduced to one of them and her name is Phoebe. So Phoebe was a deaconess, somebody serving in that capacity. So men and women in a key role that Paul needs to tell Timothy about. Have I said something funny? Or maybe someone else has. It's fine. We'll catch up later. Um, So deacons and deaconesses, an important part of church life in the New Covenant. And to understand that, we're going to look first of all at Jesus. Always a good place to start. Because Jesus is our deacon. And then we're going to look at the church. The church is actually a community of deacons. And then we're going to look at deacons, a particular group uh, serving in a particular way. So, first of all, Jesus. Why do I say that Jesus is our deacon? Well, Jesus has become to us our servant. And this was prophesied, this was predicted hundreds of years before Jesus came on earth as a man called Isaiah. And in his book, cunningly named Isaiah, there are lots of servant songs. There are lots of uh, predictions. Isaiah somehow sees this special king, a special Messiah, is one day going to come, and he is the servant of the Lord. So there are lots of songs that are about this servant of the Lord. Just one of them is in uh, Isaiah 42. And reading from verse 1, Isaiah says, or the Lord is saying through Isaiah, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. And so I think when Jesus' disciples had spent time with Jesus, after a while, it was starting to connect. They were thinking, well, we, we look at Jesus, and we look at what Isaiah said. Hang on, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing the servant of the Lord. We, they realized when they saw Jesus healing, when they saw Jesus teaching, when they saw Jesus caring, they saw, here's the servant of the Lord. He's come. This is him. Here is God's chosen one. And sometimes those disciples needed correcting, they needed teaching about what this servant was like and therefore how they were to follow in his footsteps. And so he says to them in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, it says there that uh, Jesus called them together, his closest group of disciples, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for Many. That's how Jesus came. Not, not saying to everybody, come on, serve me, serve me. This is what you can do to serve me. No, he came to serve. And that was his mission. And his message totally matched with it. His whole lifestyle 
reflected this mission that he was on to serve. And so we see a a key example of that in John's Gospel. In John chapter 13, Jesus knows that the time is coming uh, when he'll be put to death. He's in Jerusalem, about to celebrate the Passover, uh, and he knows that he's going to go and be with his be with his father he knows that he's uh, about to suffer crucifixion so he's having this last Passover meal with his disciples and whoever is in the room there's nobody prepared to do what would often be done in that situation which was to wash everyone's feet that was a task that was reserved for the lowest slaves the lowest servants the nobodies This is what it says in John 13, verse 2. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In a hot, dusty nation, agricultural culture, you could imagine just ordinary life, everyday life, could mean that from the knee down, people are really, really dirty. And so you find out that... uh, when people came to a meal like this, they would be reclining at the table, their arms and faces would be facing the table, their feet would be far back. You're not getting your feet near the food. Um, So, whilst this close group of disciples are together with Jesus, and Jesus is in the place of honour, notice that no disciple is about to jump up and start washing feet, it's beneath them. But Jesus gets up. Now, we don't see this in the text, but what we do see is that he he knew who he is. He knew who he was. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going. He knew that his father had put all things under his feet, all power, and yet he got up. No hint of reluctance. No eye roll from the Savior. Look at what I'm having to do. No one else is. I suppose I'll have to. And knowing he was, I've come to serve. And and, And so he served in that way. You think, what was on Jesus' mind? What was Jesus thinking about? What was Jesus preparing himself for? Higher things than this, surely. He could think, well, I have greater gifts. They could be used in another way. But no, he was prepared to to get down from that place of honor and wash the feet of his disciples without any reluctance, graciously stooping down to wash wash their feet, even to wash the feet of the man who had already decided to betray him. But he was serving them. And so, heading back to Ephesus, the church that Timothy is trying to lead back through to health, here's a church that's drifted away from the grace of God. They've, they've, they've been confused by teaching that was really emphasizing the law rather than emphasizing grace. Therefore, it's emphasizing their performance rather than what God has done for us. And the people, therefore, whose eyes have drifted off of Jesus. Now, we can think straight away, well, that's what Jesus did, so I have to do the same. But let's just pause before we get to that point. 
The point right here is, Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve us. And there are ways of Jesus serving that nobody else could do. And our first priority is to receive Jesus and how he has served us. It's just interesting, isn't it, to be aware of those things that were shared during the time of worship about doing. And sometimes, sometimes we can have our own to-do lists. Sometimes that's what we, what we do when we introduce ourselves to somebody or find someone new. Our way of getting to know somebody is to ask, so what do you do? We might not even ask, where do you come from? Who are your parents? You know, tell us about yourself. We'll, we'll say, so, so what do you do? Because that's where, in our culture, uh, we seem to place value. That's where my identity comes from, by what I do. Uh, you notice in that passage in, in, uh, in John 13 that, that Peter would not allow Jesus. Uh, to begin with, Peter would not allow Jesus to wash his feet. No, no, I'm not allowing you to do that to me. And Jesus says, no, Jesus insists. And so we need to come through to that place where we know, Jesus, I need you. It's not just about me serving you. It's about you've served me in a way that nobody else has done. Just ordinary life on planet Earth is, is enough to make us grubby. Grubby with sin. Grubby with failure. Grubby with bad attitudes. So God, I, I need Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, I've come to serve, to cleanse you from unrighteousness. Will you allow the Savior to serve you? Uh, do we fix our eyes on how he has served us? Is that what makes us tick? That's what makes Paul tick. He can say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in my paraphrase, I'm blown away that God has counted me faithful, that I might be appointed to his service. Yeah, if you really pressed Paul, he'd be able to tell you the things that he was doing to serve Jesus. But what's he really blown away with? How Jesus has served him. It's bubbling up enthusiasm in chapter 1. It's just like, I'm just overwhelmed by his mercy, by his grace, by his patience, by what he's done in my life. And what does it do? It brings him to a place of just wanting to worship. That's what's bubbling up. I don't think Paul was eye-rolling and huffing and puffing. Now, he was serving his saviour, but his fascination was with Jesus and all that Jesus has done. That Mary Martha reference as well. Two, two sisters wanting to honour Jesus. Martha busying herself. There's so much to do. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus. What's happening? Jesus is serving Mary and Mary's putting herself there saying, yes, I need what you have to say to me. I need to listen. I'm going to stop this other stuff because I'm coming to you, Jesus. So important that we get that into our hearts, into our ways of thinking. But the, our focus is on what Jesus has done for us. It says in Acts chapter 17 that the Lord is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. There's time just to say, stop. Stop serving. Let's not put the emphasis on what we are doing for the Lord. It's just like, no, we come to him and what he's done for us. So that is Jesus. Jesus is our deacon. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. And the church, therefore, becomes a community of deacons. A community of people who are serving the Lord and serving one another without reluctance, without eye-rolling. 
but marching to a different rhythm. You, you might remember, some of you might remember, ages ago, brought in an Indian drum, which has a skin on, on kind of both sides, um, and, and used that to say, look, in the gospel, the rhythm that we're to march to is grace and faith. Grace and faith. If we drift away from the gospel, what it can become is law and fear. Law and fear. I have to do this. I should do that. I ought to do that. And I'm scared about what people might think of me if I don't. Law and fear. Law and fear. And sometimes you have to just learn to get into that different rhythm. Right. I'm walking to a different rhythm. In the gospel, it's grace. It's not oughts and shoulds. It's faith, not fear. And we could spend the rest of our time this morning just detailing all the different ways in which loads and loads of people serve in the life of a church. All the different roles, all the different teams. But I think even then we'd be missing the point. Because being a community of deacons, it's not about having a badge that says, I've got this particular role. What do you do? I'm on the coffee team. What do you do? I play the guitar. What do you do? I'm a trustee. You know, there are different roles and responsibilities that people have, but it's, we're, we're looking at something here that's just much bigger than that. Um, for example, back in uh, Ephesians, if you like, the first letter that Paul was writing to this church, because they're kind of probably reading over Timothy, Timothy's shoulder, uh, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul brings attention to people within God's church who are serving in a particular way as an apostle or a prophet or a teacher or as an evangelist and so on. He's saying, well, here's the point. Here's why they're doing it. Verse 12, Ephesians 4, verse 12. In order to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the picture of the church is a, is a whole community serving the Lord and serving one another. And you can't necessarily just put a title or a job description next to all the different ways in which people serve. There are, there are things that are more subtle or more spontaneous by way, by way we, uh, we serve one another. It's a general attitude for all of us. This is what Paul encourages us in, uh, in his letter to the Philippians writing again to another church in Philippians 2 verse 5. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So delighted with all that Jesus has done for us, we, we are naturally going to be following in his footsteps with that same Attitude, I'm not here to be served. I'm, I'm here to take part in serving uh, one another. Um, this, this general attitude of, of servant-heartedness, considering others before ourselves and so on. And for some, that general attitude becomes a supernatural gift. So in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he's saying... Paul is talking there about supernatural gifts of the Spirit. I've given different gifts to different people. For some, it's prophesying. If that's the case, prophesy in proportion to your faith. If it's serving, then serve. In other words, there'll be some people gifted by the Holy Spirit in the church who, who don't just do what's asked of them, but they 
spot an opportunity. They, they're enabled by the Spirit to see ways of serving that no one has mentioned and no one has seen yet and no one's requested. But they kind of step in and uh, life comes uh, in, the, in, 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 the, in, the, in the church. Uh, something new develops or somebody's needs are just uh, cared for because somebody with this gift of serving just steps in unrequested. They've spotted the opportunity um, and it brings life and encouragement. So it's a, a joyful community of serving. But if, as in Ephesus, the church, this community of deacons loses sight of the grace of God and isn't fixed on Jesus, and a whole number of strange attitudes to serving can come in. In other words, we might not be a community of deacons. We could become this, a community of consumers. In other words, the church is really a small group of people, mainly paid members of staff, and it's their job to put on a service. The strangest Christian word that gets used. What, what do you mean a service? We're putting on a service. In other words, the, the aim is that just a few people in the church put on a service to attract people. Uh, so then there are lots of Christians, like happy shoppers, wandering around saying, right, the, the best worship is over there. The teaching's not so great, so maybe I'll go over there for my teaching. And so you get people just opting in and opting out all over the place into lots of different churches, or not going at all. They're kind of Wanting a thing that best suits them, that most attracts them, and I'll be there for a little while. And if it gets a bit dull, I'll go somewhere else. You know, it's just consuming church life. That's what church can become, just a, a collection of consumers. It, church can also become a community of the competitive, where you remember when Jesus said, you know, the Son of Man comes, came not to be served, but to serve, he was talking to disciples because he'd noticed that among them, they were just starting to jostle for position. We want the best seats. We want the best jobs. We want the best responsibilities in the kingdom. We don't want to do that menial spiritual stuff. We want to do the real significant, weighty spiritual things and have the glow of people's uh, adoration. So we'll, I'll be just to your right, Jesus. My best mate can be just to your left, That'll be pucker, that's sorted. So we'll try and just ease other people out of the way to less significant tasks, not meaning to gesture towards the guitar. Um, but there's a kind of a jostling for position, a, a, a desire to be more prominent than, an, than another believer, um, a, a working up the ladder. Now, if you start on that rung of serving, and hopefully after a few years, you get to do the real impressive and exciting things it's a worldly way of thinking that was in the disciples and Jesus had to say, no, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be the slave, you have to be the servant of all, following my footsteps. I didn't come to be honoured like that. Jesus lost his life. We want to be right next to Jesus. No, I'm not sure you really do. Who was next to Jesus at his greatest hour? Two people on a cross. We come to follow in his footsteps. It means losing our lives. Not trying to jostle for position. 
And if that's the way of thinking, sometimes it, it manifests not so much in that pride that wants to be seen and prominent, but sometimes that way of thinking can lead others to think, well, I'm just nowhere, really. I don't have the time available to me. My, my stage of life, my situation doesn't enable me to spend so much time serving in the life of the church. And oh, if, if only I could do more, but I can't. And sometimes people come up and have the conversation with me and they apologize for not being able to make something like a prayer meeting or something else. I'm so sorry I couldn't do that. I'm so sorry I can't do more. Like, what on earth are you apologizing for? I'm sorry I can't do enough. What are you talking about doing enough? We're part of a community. We're together as God's people. Let's not think in those terms. Oh, am I doing enough? No, you, you march to a different beat. It's grace and faith. It's not law and fear, should do. Oh, what do the elders think of me? Because I didn't make the meeting this week. Oh, please. Come to the grace of God. Come to Jesus. Allow him to serve you. Not just think in terms of should do's and ought to's and have to's and, and so on. That doesn't flow from grace. We're a community together. Yes, yeah, serving in different ways. It doesn't have to look the same. So let's not be a community of the competitive. Let's not be a community of the self-centered. Sometimes uh, we can approach church life or, or the Christian life as though the church exists to fulfill me and my potential. I'm so disappointed because people haven't spotted my obvious talents and gifts and how I should be in a position to serve like this. I mean, I can serve there, but really that's not significant. I'm waiting to be recognized. I'm hoping one day that I'll be one of those people that gets thanked from the front publicly and I'll be able to stand up and go, no, it was really nothing. Hold back your applause, people. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you know, that can sometimes be in us, can't, can't it? We want the recognition. We want, uh, we want some profile. But again, sometimes what can happen if we think in those terms is we are just waiting for a better offer. So actually it becomes the reason why we don't serve. We might have been asked to. There might be some opportunities, but it doesn't quite match my gift mix, so I'm not going to do it. I'm waiting for something better. And so people actually keep themselves on the edge of church life, waiting for the will of the Lord to be revealed one day. And sometimes, I was reading a book recently, actually a while ago, by Francis Chan. Chan. Um, very helpful book, very pr provocative book. And there's a chapter in this book that says, forget God's will for your life. It can be really unhelpful to think in those terms. Now, let me explain. How many heroes of the faith in the Bible can you think of whom God sat down and said, with loads of detail, here's my will for your life. Here is the precise blueprint. Here's how I want you to serve. You are destined for greatness. So follow me. You've got, I've given you this, this perfect, thorough roadmap. I don't think many people got that. I don't think many of us get that. I think now there might be a sense of prophetic encouragements and so on, and a genuine sense of gift and call, but for most people, I think it's just we start serving, and then we might take another step, and the Lord decides to do things a little bit differently. And we find that the Lord is leading us on a path, that he makes a path straight. But I think sometimes Christians can just get passive 
and trapped with thinking, what's the Lord's will for my life? Well, just, he's God. He's going to reveal it. But don't go thinking that he's going to give you a 20-year life plan. He says, no, follow me. Keep listening to me. Follow me again. And we allow him to lead. That might not lead us to a position of greatness, but then look what happened to Jesus. We want to have the same attitude as him. And let's not allow church either to be a, the community of the overburdened. For some, like Martha, there's just so much to do. I want to honor Jesus, but I can't do it all. And there aren't enough people around who are prepared to serve. So the solution is I just have to do more. It's not really realistic. But that's all I know how to do. I can spot a need. I suppose I have to meet it. I can spot another need. I have to meet that one over there. And there's this big, massive responsibility back here in the background. I've got to try and keep that moving forward as well. Oh, God. I've just become burdened and driven. Perhaps in that situation, the question, what's God's will for my life, becomes more helpful. Spotting a need doesn't mean that you personally have to rush to it and rush to something else and dash here and dash there. No, we're a part of a community. And if we're, if we're grasping the grace of God, we can step back from that drivenness. We can look at the whole of church life and say, oh, look at all that Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing stuff through Ben. Jesus is doing stuff through Mary. Jesus is doing stuff through Keris. Just... It's happening. God's at work. So not getting overburdened. I think our number one responsibility in church life is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Lead me. That's, that's where we want to be. But if we're to be this community of deacons, why is there this specific group of deacons? If everyone is a servant... Why do we need a specific group of people called deacons? It's just part of what it means to be a church. We're all serving. Of course we are. I'll just spend a few moments on that before we, we wrap up today because there, I think there is something massively at stake here that could really help us. What are deacons? I think deacons are a distinct group of servant leaders, men and women, within the church, working closely with elders to help bring about the ongoing mission of the church. So not everybody has the label deacon attached in that sense. It's a specific group. And I think we can get some uh, insight into it by, by looking at what happened in Acts chapter 6. which kind of describes a church experiencing growing pains. Like the gospel has been spreading. So many people have been coming to Jesus and being added into the church. The apostles are, are leading. Uh, but a problem develops right at the beginning of, of chapter 6. And the problem is that because the community has grown, the number of widows in that community has grown. They are in need, and some of them are missing out. There is a real problem. They're missing out on the daily distribution of food, and something has to be done. The apostles face a key decision. 
Do they decide the, the community's grown, the needs of the community have grown, the solution is the 12 of us just have to do more. That's the solution. We have to call on God for more strength, more power, superhuman ability, and then we can preach and teach and pastor and pray and wait on tables as well to make sure this happens appropriately. Well, they realize we can't do that. That's why the problem exists. So what do they do? It says, verse 2, that they gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. As you read on, you realize that that idea pleased the people. Uh, seven people are identified. And it says in verse 6, uh, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests become obedient to the faith. That little passage begins with a big problem. It concludes with a big blessing. The church is growing again. There's this, a new breakthrough. There's even priests coming to faith and so on. In the middle is this key decision. I think the apostles could have just said, well, Jesus got down from the table. Jesus waited on his disciples. Maybe the solution then is that as apostles, we step back from the ministry of teaching. We don't pray as much. We demonstrate what the kingdom is like and we, we, we serve at the tables. Oh, interesting that they don't do that. I think because they realize something's key is at stake. If we do that, I think they're thinking, it's not going to grow anymore because there's a limit to how many people we can serve and wait on. I think we have to release others and lay our hands on them. Now you'll notice in the text it's not talking there in Acts chapter 6 about overseers or deacons. It's talking about the twelve and the seven. So we're just drawing from that a principle. But the church is blessed when others are laid, have hands laid on them in order to serve a strategic purpose. I think by implication there's something for us to explore that I can anticipate in the life of this church a time will come when elders lay hands on people and set them aside as deacons. And I could pray and imagine that part of the fruit of that will be evangelistic breakthrough. There's a, there is a releasing. There's also a working closely together please don't press me on the details. This isn't a case for like who, when, how. Will that happen? Just why I think it needs to at some point. The Lord brings us into a new phase of having elders and deacons. Anyway, perhaps this message could be summed up, oh, it's just another exhortation to serve. Well, I think the point of this message is Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's build our lives on the grace of God. Maybe even now you notice your own attitudes, your own ways of thinking about serving are more affected by the consumer 
or the competitive or the self-centered or the overburdened. That's not what, those are not what the Lord has in mind for his people, his church. So let's come to Jesus. Are we prepared just to sit before him? Say, Jesus, I need you. The way in which you have served me and you continue to serve me. I can't live without it. For some of you right now, it's a case of actually, I've been trying to clean up my life. I've been trying to sort everything out. I've been trying to improve myself and get myself in a spiritual condition where I might be pleasing to the Lord. And you realize, I just can't do it. That's because you haven't come to Jesus and allowed him to do it. That's the gospel. He he came to serve. He came to clean us. It's him who gets the credit. It's his work. It's his performance. It's him serving. And when that impacts our lives, we're ready to acknowledge he doesn't need me, but he's brought me in. I'm included. I get to serve. It's a whole new way of thinking. An attitude of grace a people who are are ready to go to the next phase as a church could i just encourage you to pray about that we're praying for evangelistic breakthrough we're praying for what god wants to do amongst us there are times to set things down there are times to pick up new responsibilities let's trust the lord to keep leading us as a church with its eyes fixed on him and his grace amen amen